Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. In honor of the upcoming 20th anniversary of Netscape's founding, we're reaching out to several of the founding employees of the company to help us tell the Netscape story. Today we're going to be talking to Lou Montuli. Lou was a co-founder of ePinions.com and the co-founder and CEO of Memory Matrix, which was purchased by Shutterfly. He is currently the chief scientist at the online backup company Zeta.net. But 20 years ago, he was employee number nine and a founding engineer at Netscape Communications Corporation. Yeah, so Lou, Lou Montuli, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. You're welcome. Good to be here. Um, so you were born in uh, D.C., is that right? I was actually born in Los Angeles. My oh. father was in the Air Force uh, for 23 years. We moved all over the country. was in Los Angeles, Albuquerque, Ohio, New York. Ended up eight years in Washington, D.C., just outside Washington, D.C., in Fairfax, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And, and um, see, I did my, my early schooling there through the beginning of high school, and my father retired at that point, and we moved to Wichita, Kansas. I ended up in, uh, in Kansas for my final years of high school, and ended up going to the University of Kansas after that. That was my next question, how you uh, ended up at uh, University of Kansas. Um, I'm assuming your, your degree was computer science? It was uh, originally electrical and computer engineering, and then I switched to computer science a few years in because I felt uh, it better suited what I was passionate about. So is that where you uh, got interested in the Internet or uh, the web in, in general at that point? Yeah, so I was working at the University uh, Computer uh, Center, and originally I came in and was changing tapes and doing a lot of menial chores, and I kind of worked my way up to... Uh, doing uh, computer support and helping uh, professors and students figure out computers in general. A lot of um, silly questions, a lot of interesting ones. Uh, and we had an ongoing project that had been kind of sitting on the back burner for a couple of years, which was to create a online information source. We, this was kind of the emerging time when uh, putting information out on the network 
was starting to become possible. And at the time, the, the state of the art was um, either FTP, uh, which was you know, very text oriented, or uh, this program called Gopher. And Gopher was kind of the first easy to use way of accessing network, uh, accessing information over the network. Um, but its major limitation was that it simply provided a list of data. You'd go to one page and would provide five or ten choices that were numbered, and you'd choose the number, and you would go down through a series of lists, and it would get to a final document format, and that document might be text or, or something else, um, images, other, other things. There wasn't PDF or any of those sorts of things around at that time. Um, there was Word documents and Excel documents and that sort of thing, the basic uh, the very basic kind of um, computer documents that we know of today. Uh, and I set out to work on this project um, somewhat accidentally. Uh, I'd seen this uh, product called HyperRes, uh, which was a hypertext, a local hypertext browser, which I was became fascinated with. I'd never seen hypertext before that and saw that it was a really interesting medium for connecting documents together. And I thought that this was a much better method for for browsing documents than Gopher. And so I started a project, uh, really a prototype project, where I merged uh, the user interface of HyperRes to, uh, to Gopher, which was a way of uh, getting to the documents over the network. And I created uh, the product called Links uh, in, a, in a prototype for, forum in a couple of days by kind of merging these two uh, separate programs together. Uh, and started working on the Lynx project. I got to go ahead from uh, the management of computer science at the computer center there to work on it. And we started working on that for about a year and created a, um, a hypertext program that used Gopher as the back-end network protocol. So about a year into this, um, started hearing about this other project that Tim Berners-Lee was working on and that Mark Andreessen was working on simultaneous called the web. Uh, which actually did the exact same thing, uh, but used different protocols. Uh, so it used HTML and HTTP instead of Gopher and you know basically this really primitive um, uh, hypertext format, which I had come up with. Um, so we've been essentially working on very similar things uh, in parallel, uh, mm-hmm. and I realized that an ecosystem is stronger when you have multiple people working on it. So what I did is I took links and added the capability for it to process HTTP and HTML, and um, then had something that was uh, that worked within the ecosystem of what was being called the web at that point. And but at, the, at this point, it's it's always when I find it on in articles, it's always referred to as a text-only browser. So it gains browser capability, but it's still at this point text-only. Is that right? Yeah, which was, uh, the web was text only at right. that point as well. Right. There was no images, there was nothing else. So um, the, the, um, the actual interface for links is on uh, terminal systems. Uh, so there, uh, there's, it's rare to have terminals that can provide uh, image capability. So you might, you might see that on X Windows, which is a terminal as well. Right. Uh, but most of the users for links were on um, text uh, terminals uh, through uh, PCs and other other kind of at, at that time there was a lot more um, VT100 displays and that sort of thing connected to mainframes, VAX systems, Unix systems, that sort of thing. In fact, at the time that um, that the web really started to take off, uh, we don't really have strong numbers for this, but I think Lynx was probably the most used program on the web that th- at that time because people actually had access to it. Uh, and, you know, it was really popular on, among universities, and students at that time uh, generally had access to computers via mainframe and PCs connected to mainframe computers because it was rare to have a regular PC connected to the Internet that could have uh, a standalone web browser to it. Yeah, I actually don't have it in front of me, but I did. I found a, um, a link to something that was estimating the size um, of browser usage, I guess, uh, a year into Mosaic, and Lynx was still right up there with Mosaic at that point, at least according to the estimates. So, um, yeah, and also the first version of Mosaic was X Windows, mm-hmm. and almost nobody has X Window access. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So, it, 
actor. And Mo- Mosaic didn't really. I mean, Mosaic was popular on X Windows, but it didn't really take off until the Mac and Windows versions came out. Is that correct? Exactly. Um, what Mosaic was was incredibly um, beautiful um, platform that showed the potential of the web. And so seeing on X Windows gave it um, a lot of pizzazz, and people could get excited about that. And then as the ecosystem filled in, uh, the other browsers, Lynx, uh, Cello, um, uh, Mac Mosaic, and Win Mosaic, uh, helped give people access to it all over the world. Because uh, as I said, very few people had X Windows terminals. So at this point, are you? Um... Have you crossed paths with the NCSA guys and, and Berners-Lee on, on message boards and forums and things like that? Yeah, as, as soon as I saw uh, the release of uh, XMosaic uh, from Mark, I, um, I realized the potential for me immediately was I wouldn't have to write um, this X-Windows version because I, ironically I was working on an X version, X-Windows version of Lynx at that exact same time, so the the timing was... Um, you know, kind of perfect, and I said, oh, well, Mark's written this thing, I don't need to write an, another version, save myself a bunch of time, so I reached out to him at, uh, early on, and um, we started communicating fairly regularly within a few months' time, uh, and uh, as, as I was working, so at, at the time, the web, um, the web protocols and such were supported by an open source library that came out of um, the web project that Tim Berners-Lee was running at, at CERN. And so we were essentially using the same open source libraries. And uh, I started working on those libraries pretty extensively to improve their support for various other protocols like FTP, uh, Waze, and, and, other, and other, uh, other things. And so Mark and I were communicating kind of constantly on improving the library and making the backend support for these protocols uh, much better. Yeah, and actually, uh, a lot of archives of those messages are online if you hunt around for them. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, there's a there's a message board called www-talk. Right, exactly. Which, which was the the first one, and then there was a there was another one because that one got really popular among kind of the general populace, and so we created another one for developers only, which was a little bit more exclusive. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> not not like a something you'd really want to be on necessarily, but just for the people who are actively working on on the development of the code. Right. So then the first time that you would have met Mark uh, or any of the Mosaic guys was at the um, Web Developers Conference in uh, Cambridge in 93? Absolutely, yes. And that was uh, sponsored by O'Reilly. It was a great opportunity for um, us to get together, discuss some topics that had been um, somewhat controversial and move move the um, move was, the ball forward. Was one of those controversies the whole idea of adding images to the web? <laughs> yeah, um, the there was a definite schism between um, us young kids and um, and especially Tim Berners Lee, who uh, wanted to keep the web uh, essentially lowest common denominator all the time. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say that he was opposed to. Um, Adding, uh, adding images and other things, but he was opposed to the kind of the methodology in which it was going about. Wanted to make sure that everything was accessible, and so we had a bunch of discussions around that at the conference and came up with some, you know, interesting ideas. That's where the idea of alt text came from, of adding uh, textual descriptions of the images so that that could be shown in place, uh, or as the and now as it's used as used as the tooltip. Um, we also um, you, you don't wouldn't know this now, but uh, back then the HTML was incredibly primitive in terms of what it could actually mark up, and there was no way to even do a line break. So I remember we we, we added the uh, the line break, the br uh, tag at that point, which is you know it's hard to imagine that it did it never existed, but it really was um, there wasn't any really presentation markup in HTML at that time uh, because um, Tim coming from the SGML world, had wanted to add uh, essentially style sheets um, early on. It was just a style sheets being so complicated were, um, w- wasn't necessarily a practical thing to do very quickly. So, um, so Mosaic takes off and um, 
is there any discussion about uh, maybe merging links and Mosaic or maybe you uh, heading over to the NCSA or anything like that, or are you still staying in Kansas at this point and uh, developing links on your own? Yeah, I was still in Kansas uh, developing on my own. Uh, we brought on another staff member who was working on a version of links for DOS, uh, and we released that. Um, I never considered going to NCSA. The, the, the working relationship that we had over email was certainly working fine, uh, and things, things were also developing very rapidly. Uh, Mark left the project uh, fairly quickly and moved to California. Uh, I was uh, close to uh, graduating, so I was planning my exit um, regardless. Um, and the certainly one could see that the popularity was taking off and that there was um, a commercial potential for for things in the future. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I had always, in the back of my mind, even at the beginning of the project, thought, well, I'm, I'm releasing this thing so that I can gain some exposure and experience so that I can go on and actually get a job because eventually you need to make some money. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be starting a company, but uh, I knew that it was going to be something uh, in the tech career. So that leads us to uh, who gets in touch with you um, to uh, start the recruiting process for Netscape. Is it is it Mark or Jim Clark or actually well, before, before you answer that, Jim Clark says in his autobiography that you were at a racquetball tournament in Kansas yeah. City or something. Um, so they they contact you and you fly out. Yeah, so uh, I was at the uh, intercollegiate national um, racquetball tournament down in um, Arizona, uh, and it's a week-long tournament. So I came back from that and had an email waiting for me. This was back before you could check email on your phone. <laughs> um, that um, I had actually a phone message. Uh, I think it was just a phone message, not an email. Maybe it was an email as well, but I ended up calling... Um, uh, Jim back uh, got his uh, got his personal assistant instead of Jim, uh, and it was uh, basically, basically the message was um, Jim and Mark are going to fly out to Illinois uh, and want to talk about starting a company. Uh, would like you to join him there, um, and uh, they were going to meet the very next morning. And this was you know like one o'clock in the afternoon, so. Um, basically, I had to. I just gotten flown in from Arizona. Came from the airport to the office, so I got back into my back into my car, drove back to the airport, and bought a ticket uh, to to Illinois uh, on the next flight out, which was a little stressful as a college student. I don't know how close you right, are. Right, I was going to say no. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would hope they'd uh, at least reimburse you or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most I'd ever made uh, in uh, salary at that point was like eight thousand dollars a year. So basically, living check to check. Um, and I remember asking uh, his assistant, uh, "So are you sure that Jim can reimburse me on this? Because I really don't have the kind of money that I can just hop on a get a a, a flight uh, on the on the same day because they're always you know three or four times ex as expensive." Right. right. Um, but uh, yeah, fortunately, my credit card had enough uh, on it that I could get the flight, and I actually ended up beating um, Jim and Mark out there because they get stuck in a snowstorm, so um, got there a few hours ahead of them. So the the legend is is that they uh, they do the interviews and the, the recruiting pitch at a pizza joint or something like that. What do you what do you remember how that went down? Uh, yeah, I think it, it, we were actually in the hotel lobby, uh, mm. or not the lobby, but they're kind of lounge, uh, if I remember correctly. It is a little hazy, so I wouldn't contradict what they said. But um, um, we we basically got all to, got together uh, and started talking about you know, what we could do and uh, uh, the idea of creating a company around um, around commercializing the web. And you know, this is what we've been doing for the last couple of years. So there was certainly no disagreement. Mostly, we were talking about potential and. Um, how awesome it would be. Uh, and then we did have um, individual meetings with Jim. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to say whether uh, what, what the purpose of that was. I think Jim was, uh, uh, Jim was uh, selling us and also trying to make sure that uh, all, these, all, all of us weren't a little crazy because it's the first time he was meeting us. 
so there was definitely some selling going on, Jim, Jim talking about things um, which uh, to our starry eyes seemed uh, kind of incredible and unbelievable. Um, uh, but he, uh, you know, he's a very, um, he's a very uh, convincing guy and passionate. And so I, I remember walking out of that meeting just being in, incredibly, um, uh, in, incredibly excited about the opportunity and how uh, wonderful things were going to be in in the uh, beautiful land of California. Well, right. I was going to say. I mean, um, there was no hesitation on your part. I mean, you know, today. You know, kids leave college, go out to California, and and you know, dream of becoming billionaires and stuff. And I know, you know, Netscape wasn't the first startup of startups, but you know, the the template for going out and starting a web company, you guys made that template. So, it there wasn't a little bit of hesitation there. You were you were just excited. What was? Do you remember what you felt like about that? Uh, well, for me, the opportunity was just at a perfect time, perfect opportunity. I was already out job hunting, had done several interviews at Intel and, and other places, and I had gotten some really good offers, I mean, way beyond what I thought I was going to be making right out of college. I mean, um, back then, a fantastic job out of college would be $30,000, um, and, uh, you know, I was stoked. I was, people were offering me, you know, double that. I was, how could, how could this be? This is fantastic. Um, so the future felt really bright. Uh, and uh, but I I did really really love what I was doing uh, on the web, and the idea to continue working on that with uh, with a luminary from the industry and and the folks that I knew were already great programmers and could could really pull off something amazing was um, I mean I never had a second thought about that it was it was everything lined up this was just the perfect opportunity for uh, at the perfect time so. It was, it was never a question from in my mind that I wouldn't go do that. So actually, uh, jumping ahead to California then, um, so from day one, is the plan to, to do a better browser? Or w was it still sort of up in the air, you were going to do something on the web, but you didn't know what it was yet? Or was, that, was, was the browser the plan from day one, is my question? Uh, the, the browser was the plan from day one. So... Uh, the, maybe some of the um, the confusion there is that when when Jim and Mark first met, they were throwing around a bunch of other ideas uh, because Jim had done some really interesting things with uh, with uh, on-demand television and some things with Nintendo and some other interesting projects. Um, but eventually, they uh, came to their senses and realized that <laughs> the web really was the the right opportunity. So um, by well, the time we got and the browser, the browser kind of seems like it's it was the obvious step for them too because you know they they already know how to do this they're going to get the band back together. Exactly. Um, so by the time we came together in Illinois, the, the, there was really only the focus to do something on the web. Um, so there was there was two efforts there. There was we knew we were going to lead with the browser. So the the plan was certainly to. Um, wholly recreate the, a new browser uh, ground up uh, with uh, stability, performance, um, and uh, targeted towards the, uh, the average consumer and average computer. Uh, so make it available to everybody and make a great product that everybody wants to use. And then the, the only kind of question that was remaining is how to, how to really make money on this thing. And so there was a lot of discussion about what, the, what we're actually selling and they eventually arrived at the at the model that we would create servers as well and sell the servers and give the client away for free. Uh, so essentially the razor and razor blades model. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Right, and so was that something that, uh, was that strategy worked out? Uh, 
from the top. I'm I'm curious to know about like well first of all like what was your your job title at that point? Uh, almost all of us were just uh, MTS, member of the technical staff. We were engineers, right. uh, and none of us really were that concerned about titles. Uh, you know, we basically made up our own titles on our business card, that sort of thing. Right. So that's that's sort of my question. Um, you know, the way uh, the the NCSA guys describe it, you know, coming up with different features, you know, coming up with new new things to add to the to the next version. They're they're sort of kicking it around bull bull session style. Is that how Netscape was at the beginning, or? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a, a very. Uh open and collaborative process. Uh, everybody has a voice and uh, the, the, the general consensus was the, the best ideas will rise to the top and uh, you, you argue passionately for what you believe in and uh, just continue to make forward progress. Uh, so there, not a lot of formal planning uh, pro, um, meetings and that sort of thing. Uh, um, Essentially, we were moving so insanely fast, we would have these impromptu meetings when we hit particular roadblocks that uh, would discuss the issue and try to really ring it out and then just move forward. So a lot of times you would uh, you'd, you'd get to an implementation issue and then you'd just grab some people. It might even be 10 o'clock at night, grab a bunch of people, go you know, yell at each other for a while, as we like to say. Uh, it's usually more cordial than that. Uh, come up with an idea, and then you know you start implementing it right away. Um, so we didn't have uh, we didn't have uh, product traditional product management. We didn't have a team of people that were you know off in a corner deep thinking. The advantage that we had was that we had all been there at the very beginning and had spent years you know working on the web. So we had um, we had all this experience already, and. <clears throat> we're able to make experienced decisions quickly, which led to possibly, you know, certainly in my life, the, the, the greatest uh, and fastest uh, explosion of, of code and ideas that have, I've ever seen. I mean, it was amazing. All these people coming together with uh, great ideas, had worked on this area for many years, um, and had already uh, produced something very similar, i.e. another web browser. Um, here we're recreating a new web browser from scratch, but oh. along similar principles. So we're able right. to move. By, by the way, did, was that a um, was that an edict that you know we can't use any of the old Mosaic code? We've got to do everything completely from the ground up. Absolutely yes. Um, the idea was to to sell this thing, so we needed to create something that wouldn't be encumbered by any um, any other copyright or commercial uh, problems. So. Uh, made sure that we started clean and just moved forward. And what was what were you specifically working on? Was it the browser side or the uh, the uh, server side? I was I was the weird one because uh, I was doing a, I had a little bit of a hand in both. Um, I was doing all the cross-platform networking code and uh, back-end databases and the, the communication flow within the browser. Uh, so you think about there was uh, essentially three parts to each um, uh, brow um, browser and when I say each browser I mean we had we had 17 different platforms to support we had uh, Windows we had Mac and we had 11 versions of, of Unix and then within Windows and Mac there was different versions um, 64 and 32-bit and other other things so they all they looked like a lot of different um, browsers in some ways um, so there was front-end code, which was the user interface. Uh, there was there was uh, low-level code, which was how the operating system interacts with um, uh, you know, various um, networking libraries and that sort of thing. That was that was uh, the responsibility of the front-end teams. Uh, and then there was um, the HTML um, interpreter, if you will. It, it was the parser and um, how it interfaced with the UI elements on the screen, and that was uh, written by Eric Vina. And then everything else that was cross-platform nearly, <coughs> excuse me, um, I was writing, so the networking code, the <coughs> things like bookmarks, databases, history, caching, um, those sorts of things, settings, 
that's the stuff I was working on. So at this point, what's uh, Mark Andreessen's role? He's he's sort of hovering in general, uh, you know, giving the marching orders or, or or just keeping everyone marching in the same direction. What's what's his role at this point? Well, I think the plan was him for, for him to be uh, kind of a technical leader uh, when we started, um, and he started in that role, trying to basically say we're going to go, you know, he was trying to make kind of a technical roadmap. Um, the reality was he quickly got kind of consumed with a whole lot of other stuff going on, um, especially the um, the um, public relations effort and the ability to work with other companies. So uh, we saw him a fair amount in the first month or two, and we he would, he would come to engineering meetings and such. Uh, but then we didn't see him a whole lot after that. He got really, uh, really busy doing other stuff not directly related to the, the client and the server team. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jim Clark, too, is he not necessarily there on a day-to-day -day basis? He's out hiring people and things like that? Yeah, well, Jim was Jim was uh, key in building the relationships, uh, hiring uh, a, a pretty massive team, um, Early on, because as we as we felt that the the client and server were on track, um, Jim was smart enough to recognize, well, we need to we need to build out these other services. So he started working on building out a, uh, a <coughs> product called the um, uh, Merchant Server, uh, which was uh, which was something that could sell um, uh, actually do commerce on the web, so shopping cart model. Um, various other things. So it, was, it was a server specifically designed to help you um, provide commerce on the web, which was different than our uh, than our content server, uh, and uh, also fundraising and other things. Uh, having now been through that process many years on, I know how time consuming that is. And Jim uh, Jim really executed that very very well. So you guys are able to get the the beta version of Navigator out in what, six months? Uh, let's see, it was uh, May 2nd, essentially we were code complete about the, new, about the end of uh, August, mid-September. Um, so yeah, I think, the, I think the original beta came out like at the very early part of October, if I'm correct. Uh, that was 20 years ago, so <laughs> hard to remember exactly, but um, that is about six months, yeah, which is ridiculously fast, considering how complex and how much code was there. And and then you had the the server was out a couple months after that, too, right? So then, you know, right away the the business plan is in place. Yeah, I mean, technically we were hosting off the server right away, but yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't release the server uh, probably. That was on a different release plan commercially for for a little while, but. Um, technically, it went out at the same time the client did because we were we were hosting off of it ourselves. So, are you guys able to feel, you know, the rocket ship start to take off in the sense that you are, are you aware of how popular Navigator gets? Um, I mean, it's it's obviously a year, two years on from when you're doing things like links and mosaics, so the the web itself is bigger, but. You know, did, what what did it feel like once you finally get it out there, and you know, it's starting to really take off? Well, it was you know, it was we we didn't have a long space between it. We, essentially, we're working on links and mosaic one day, and then we go to California, start working on on uh, Netscape the next day. So we had about six months when when we were just heads down uh, working on our new implementation, but. We were yeah, still... but I, ironically, at that point, the the web is doubling in size every what two months. So even that six month period, the web's way bigger than than it was previous. So. Right. So, but we were still very much involved in the web um, development community as um, one of our one of our tenants coming from the open source community at the university was to try to keep this whole thing open. That was a very important part of who we were and how our culture was. So. When we came up with new ideas, we put them out to the web community rather than just say, "Hey, this is our idea. We're gonna, we're gonna just run, run with this." So, we had the idea that we wanted to continue to be open and wanted to make everything we did be part of the future standard. Um, 
So when we came up with new ideas, we put them out there and said, hey, this is, this is uh, a cool idea, and this is how we're thinking of doing it. What do you guys think? And we would get feedback. We would um, change what we were doing if people have better ideas and, uh, and just generally try to put forth stuff in a way that other people can use it. Well, like uh, uh, like SSL, right? Like you guys work to develop that, but you immediately uh, put it out there for everybody. Exactly. Um, but the the tenant was uh, it's only useful if everyone can use it, and that uh, uh, this rising tide makes all makes everything go up. So um, that's not the metaphor I was looking for, but <laughs> close enough. Uh, I know there's a good metaphor in there, but. I've forgotten it. Uh, uh, so SSL is a good example. There had been a lot of um, a lot of talk about these other other encryption technologies and things that weren't going anywhere. And we knew that the in order for the web to succeed, that people needed to trust it. Uh, we wanted commerce to explode on the on the web, but without security and trust, people aren't going to buy anything. So uh, we felt we had to put out the best possible security. Uh, software and the best way to get everyone to use it is to give away an implementation completely free. So we made a reference implementation, gave the code away, uh, and uh, and worked really hard to make it as as good as it could be. So you guys are all in your twenties at this point. So you're routinely pulling the what you know the legendary thirty, forty, fifty hour coding days and sleeping <laughs> under your desk and that sort of thing. Uh, it was it's bad. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking recently about what my diet was back then. Essentially, like ten uh, ten uh, uh, Mountain Dews, full strength, no diet, <laughs> uh, horrible food, uh, and uh, uh, I think my my regular schedule back then would be to come in, work for about uh, twenty hours straight. We had a little we had a futon room. Um, which is a little disturbing to think about now, but uh, it was a it was a mattress in a in a conference room that was dark, and I would catch about four or five hours of sleep in, at the office, wake up and do another twenty hours, and then uh, go home and sleep for like twelve or fifteen hours, mm -hmm. and start the whole cycle again. <clears throat> to be to be twenty again, right? Exactly. Well, one one of the things I, one of the things about that time that made it special was. We had um, we had the design pretty well figured out because we'd already written it before. Um, so there was a great deal of actual coding to be done. Typically, when you're in a company, uh, especially a new company, a startup, you spend a lot of time thinking very deeply about what the product should be and about uh, certain design constraints because this is the first time you've written a product like that. Um, so we had a unique situation where they had a ton of work to be done that just needed to get done. Um, and so you really could work that hard and be productive. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing that to your average startup. And unfortunately, a lot of startup people think that that's the way it should be done because of all the publicity we had. But we had a very special circumstance. So I, to all the young coders out there, if, uh, if they're listening, that's not a great way of, of getting work done in a smart uh, intelligent uh, uh, coding methodology. Yeah, you know that that's funny. When I, you know, have been doing the research on this, it's it, it is funny how much of the lore of how the the Netscape environment was has become sort of like the template for the startup. I mean, even going back to you hear stories of these chair football games and um, you know having competitions with remote control cars and, and work hard, play hard, you know, sleep under your desk, that sort of thing. It's almost like it's almost like the startup culture took what you guys did and used it as a model, you know? Yeah, and unfortunately the the startup culture was defined by the press and the press just take whatever they think is most interesting, juicy and fascinating out of their out of their limited time and they publicize that. So it was, especially post Netscape in 1998-1999, every startup was trying to do the things that they read about in the magazines, but what they read about in the magazines was nowhere near the reality of what Netscape was. That was just what the popular media thought it was because that's what they were taking out of their limited time and publicizing.
Well, and and not only that, but the the whole uh, get big fast thing. I know that that's that's a uh, Jeff Bezos uh, line, but you know your the whole strategy of let's get out there, get ubiquitous, and we'll worry about money later. You know, again, especially in the dot com days, that was the playbook. Well, I, I, it's my understanding that that's still a reasonable um, uh, economic model, right? First mover advantage. Right. Uh, there's a lot of uh, economists who will still support that model. Um, it, it does matter your industry, certainly, whether or not that's a viable model, but um, certainly with a lot of technology, um, a lot of different technologies that have switching costs, getting to users first gives you a big advantage because uh, the consumer doesn't want to go try something different after they're locked into something they like. So do you have uh, memories of the IPO? Right. Uh, the IPO, um, certainly a, a positive time in the history of the company. Uh, honestly, it was not the not a huge event for most of us um, because at that time we were still really, really heads down uh, working on uh, the browser and other Netscape products and um, the you know, the company was trying not to make it a, a distraction. Um, I certainly remember not putting any thought at all into it um, prior to the day of IPO. Woke up on the morning of the IPO and was obviously shocked to see what had happened uh, and see the run up and um, and the you know just really ridiculous, <laughs> amazing thing. Uh, but it spent about a day thinking about it um, and then quickly got back to work. Um, yeah, certainly there was the there was the thought in my mind that now there's a hell of a lot of money available to my bank account, um, but uh, worked really hard and the whole company uh, from the top down uh, uh, was really focused on on saying let's not let this become a distraction. Let's keep the main thing the main thing, as Barksdale liked to say, and know that that that. Um, that price, that valuation is dependent on the work we're going to continue to do. So, if we don't keep, if we don't keep the buses running on time, if we don't keep working hard, that's not going to mean anything. So, uh, there was a there was a celebration, there was a party. Um, they they were relatively uh, fast affairs, and everybody got right back to work and worked hard and tried not to let that become a big distraction. It wasn't really until um, a fair amount of time later when uh, liquidity kicked in and some other events happened that you know really dawned on any of us that well we've, we've got a lot of money. The the Porsches start showing up in the parking lot. Honestly, the Porsches didn't really show up uh, until we started acquiring other companies. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, the founders, uh, the initial crew from NCSA and I and uh, and some others. Uh, we kept each other very grounded. None of us uh, bought any fancy cars. We we kind of joked that uh, we were you know going to drive um, drive beaters for the rest of our lives just to disprove the whole myth that you have to you have to become nouveau riche. So uh, most of us drove you know, very reasonable cars uh, for many many years. Uh, I didn't buy my first uh, fancy car until after after I'd left Netscape. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tried to keep each other just grounded and, and focused, knowing that uh, those sorts of things are merely distractions in our life. And what made us special, what made us great was our ability to, you know, have these um, technical achievements. And if we give that up, you know, what, what are we? You, um, you left Netscape in, is it 98, to, to, to do ePinions, is that right? Yeah, I left... Uh, at the end of '98, uh, right as uh, the acquisition, AOL acquisition. Was okay, happening. right. That would that was my next question. Um, you know, uh, in in retrospect, you know, it, it historically it goes down to everyone says Netscape got crushed underfoot by Microsoft, the browser wars, and all that stuff. Um, I mean, do you feel like that there was anything Netscape Netscape did wrong, could have done differently. Um, you know, again, looking back on it 15 years later, I don't know how how that much time makes you gives you a perspective on that sort of thing. But um, what you know, were you guys aware that 
that Microsoft was coming for you and then and things were starting to get bad at some point? Absolutely, yeah. It was hard to escape, unfortunately. Um, and you know, at the, at, back in those days, I had a fair amount of anger about the whole thing. Um, I, I will preface some of this as saying that um, uh, you know, Microsoft was eventually found guilty of significant malfeasance, and uh, you know, it was largely because of the, the, the pressure that we brought to bear. Um, and it was unfortunate that we had to be the victim of that. Uh, it was also pretty sad to see um, the next administration come in and essentially dismiss all of the uh, penalties against the company. Um, but uh, the, the net result was um, as Netscape grew, um, we diverted from our original business model a little bit because people really wanted to pay us for the client. And so we started to generate a substantial amount of licensing revenue from the, the client, from um, businesses, especially Fortune 500 businesses. They were paying us a lot of money. Uh, we were still selling the server, but we were also selling a significant amount of, of the browser. About some, somewhere close to half of our revenue was coming from that. Uh, and we used that money to grow the company very quickly and start to diversify. Um, what Microsoft did was they had a strategy to essentially take away all of our revenue on the client side. Um, and so they originally said, well, we'll just give the browser away for free. Uh, and they tried that for a couple of versions. So they originally bought uh, a version of the browser from uh, Spyglass, Spyglass. And, and put that out and then started working on their own. Uh, and they tried to give away their browser for free for a really long time and nobody would take it because it wasn't particularly good software. Um, now over time they improved their software but they still weren't getting a lot of traction in um, giving it away for free so they started essentially paying people to start using their browser. Uh, and um, there was many, many examples where we would close a big deal uh, or be close to closing a big deal and we'd find out that, um, that no, we're not really going to get the money from that deal because uh, uh, somebody from Microsoft came in and uh, offered to buy a division of that company for an obscene profit so that that large company would start using Microsoft browser instead of our browser. So instead of us getting 20 or 30 million dollars on that deal, that company got paid 20 or 30 million dollars to not use us. Um, that's that's a, a little disheartening, but we were still doing well. We still had 90% uh, of the market and making traction. The biggest single event that uh, really triggered the downfall of, of our company was the, um, the switch uh, of the AOL browser from Netscape to, to uh, Internet Explorer. At that time, Internet, uh, uh, AOL, at that time AOL was 35% of the internet traffic because a lot of people uh, in the US uh, were on AOL dial-up and they don't get a choice. They get whatever browser AOL was giving them and they were using uh, our browser because it was the best. Um, so uh, you know, this is all well publicized. Microsoft offered AOL a place on the desktop if they would switch and that's worth you know, billions of dollars. And, and the illegality there was that's tying one one monopoly to another business, and it's what uh, Microsoft was found guilty of abusing at that time. But what it, what it really did was it changed this, the the nature of the browser um, percentages. So it went from 90% Netscape to more like 65 to 70% Netscape, essentially overnight. And what that meant was that the content producers, the guy create the guys creating the, all of the uh, content on the web before would just write new features for uh, for Netscape, and it meant that we always had a lead. We continue continue to come out with new software, and that was better and better. And when 30% of the internet is now suddenly Internet Explorer, now that all the content guys are saying, "Oh, well, now we have to pay attention to Internet Explorer. Now we have to create content that works equally good in both." And what that did was it made us a commodity. And when you're a commodity, uh, you can use either and it doesn't really matter, then uh, you're going to lose to the, the big fish in town. Uh, in order for a small company to succeed against a big company, you have to have a product advantage, you have to have uh, uniqueness and differentiation. And once you become a commodity, then all you can do is give it away for free or have it cheaper. Um, and uh, you can't be cheaper than what Internet Explorer was, which was free and coming with everything else. So 
Um, making us a commodity essentially meant the death of our client business, uh, which meant uh, for all intents and purposes we were now no longer the mover and shaker on the internet anymore. Even despite the fact that most of your revenue isn't coming from the client, it's coming from the servers. Right, but 50% of our revenue was from the client, and to switch 50% of your revenue in one year is a, a Herculean right. task. You know, it was, it it put insane pressure on us, and we started behaving a little bit dysfunctionally. Um, the company decided it wanted to become a groupware company all of a sudden, and so we're suddenly focusing efforts on email and and uh, other kinds of groupware features, which is very distracting from our primary mission, which was web browsers and uh, and uh, the web itself. Uh, I, I think, in retrospect, it would have been much better to stay focused on, on just the web. Clearly, there's revenue there. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, at, at the time, we were uh, scrambling because we were under intense financial pressure. Uh, once you grow, it's very hard to shrink back down. You know, budgets only go up, should only go up <laughs> in most cases. So, it, it became very, very difficult. Um, you know, we, we certainly had um, our share of uh, other interesting challenges uh, that at the time felt, you know, really, uh, really serious. But in, in, in my retrospect, having been 20 years in the industry right now, we were still doing a lot of things really, really well as a company, as an engineering company, other things. Could have done them better, but um, certainly um, uh, in a normal company, none of the things that we were doing badly would have killed, um, killed the company. Uh, but uh, uh, as our as our client revenue shrank, uh, we we were under intense financial pressure, and the company started to have this really uh, kind of doom and gloom in it, especially at the beginning of 1998 when we had to do layoffs and other things. You said earlier um, you were bitter about it for a long time. Do you feel slightly differently about it now? Well, t time has healed those wounds. Uh, but I was, you know, I was really, really angry at, at Microsoft and Bill Gates in particular for essentially killing the company that I had helped create and put all my blood, sweat, and tears into. And uh, I, I get why they did it. They felt threatened. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they, at least if they'd done it uh, fairly, I would have felt a little bit better about it. I probably still would have been pretty angry. But to know that they had broken the law to do it, to know that they, uh, um, you know, were essentially... You know, as I felt it, as I felt then, they were taking food from the mouth of my children. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was uh, it was really made me angry. They they set out specifically to kill our company, and that I think that would make anybody angry. Um, yeah, I, I'm still uh, I still have some money uh, from the from the experience. I'm not uh, I'm not uh, going to be in a trailer park anytime soon, and uh, I'm very happy for the experience and. Uh, uh, in some ways, I'm I'm really quite happy that I didn't become some mega billionaire from the experience because I've been able to go on and create other companies and grow and learn and and become a much better uh, engineer and better uh, manager, leader, uh, builder of companies. And I don't know that I would have had the same uh, incentive to do that if um, if we had simply gone on and and become Google sized or something like that. Mm -hmm. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uh, switching, switching horses here a bit, I wanted to get back to, to you personally a little bit because um, there's so many basic features of browser technology and web technology that, you know, you had a hand in and you were there for, um, you know, uh, proxying, SSL, that sort of thing. But a, a couple in particular... Um, You've become, as you put it, uh, somewhat infamous for uh, the browser cookie. Yeah. Um, I guess you want me to talk about cookies then. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. I mean, you know, people, you know, people have hated advertising on the internet from day one. But it's, you know, obviously we couldn't have gotten to this place if we didn't have advertising and and, uh, you know, the cookie in in your blog post that you have about it. It was. It was a really thoughtful 
way that you did it. Like you put a lot of thought into it when when you first came up with it. And you know, I don't know. Some of the articles make it seem like it's you know some sort of albatross or something, but you know somebody had to do it, and you did it in a thoughtful way. I think. Yeah, we certainly cared a lot about privacy, and there had been a lot of discussion about other mechanisms for adding state to the web. Uh, and so when I designed cookies, um, it was really with a, with the uh, thought that we're going to try to add some state to the web, but as as protected as we possibly can of our privacy across the web. Uh, so uh, cookies would enable us to have uh, a memory uh, so that when we return to sites, uh, we, we can we can interact with that site in a way that it remembers us and 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 can can have a much richer interaction. Uh, but at the same time, wanted to protect against the tracking across all websites through the sharing of unique IDs. Um, as is well publicized, we weren't able to achieve all those goals. Uh, that some amount of tracking was enabled by by essentially having a whole bunch of websites um, work with work with uh, other centralized websites to do this collection. Um, uh, but also, as I've as I've said in other blog posts and such, in in pretty much any model that you have some sort of memory. And I would I would I would preface that this by saying that some amount of memory is absolutely necessary for a for a reasonable experience on the web. So any model which introduces memory will suffer from that same problem, i.e., the ability to collect some amount of information um, uh, uh, in in the future. So there isn't really any way to get away from this except give away all the get, get rid of all the features that we know and love about the web. Um, so we have to uh, deal with this problem in some way, uh, and cookies give the power, much of the power, back to the user. So that the users who really care about uh, uh, strong privacy protections can go in and change their settings um, and change uh, how they how their web browser works, so that they can they can uh, uh, take control back. Uh, and you know, one of the one of the things that I would say is that uh, good technology stands the test of time, and people have looked at cookies and examined cookies and and tried to come up with better alternatives for 20 years, and it's still the same old cookie, uh, meaning that, that nobody's come up with anything better yet. Uh, and I've thought about it a lot, and um, there there are some minor improvements we could make, but the basic fundamental tenet of the cookie is still a good one. And people get a, a ton of benefits from it. No, I, I think you actually, like I said, I thought it was a, a reasonable uh, argument that you made in that blog post, which I'll I'll put a link to that uh, on the post page as well. Um, but answer for the blink tag. <laughs> well, I think my blog post kind of says it all. We <laughs> we came up with it as a kind of a funny uh, a funny thing, um, and then. Um, it was introduced uh, by uh, the other engineers as a uh, as an Easter egg, um, uh, a functional Easter egg. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the functional Easter egg leaked out, and uh, people started using it. So clearly, there was some demand there, <laughs> although uh, not uh, not necessarily enjoyed by all. Um, and and uh, we did give, finally give you the ability to turn blink off and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was kind of a funny, a funny joke that got a little out of control. <laughs> I kind of agreed with a, a commenter that uh, Blink wasn't nearly as annoying as the marquee. You remember that the marquee tags? Yeah. And... Well, you know, all those things um, eventually culminated culminated uh, in the invention of the animated GIF. Which oh, is... I, that's funny that you say that. I was going to bring that up too. Um, how were how were you involved with that? Like. Uh, Making that a standard in the browser, or what was the deal there? So uh, the we had uh, decided to add Java uh, into the browser as a as a kind of standard uh, feature, basically a plugin that was included with the browser. And Java had all this great promise as being a something a running code within the browser in a sandboxed, safe environment. The problem was uh, Java at that time. Had a horrible implementation, and took about 30 seconds to boot 
just to like start up. So if any Java app comes in a web page, 30 seconds later the Java app uh, starts up after grinding your computer to a complete halt. So it was not a particularly wonderful experience. And uh, I found as I was surfing the web after Java was released, the only it seemed like the only purpose that people were using Java for at the time was to put scrolling banner banner ads and uh, and flashing things up um, uh, above content so that people would notice the uh, the banner ad. And uh, I was just really annoyed that every time I went to a web page, it would take 30 seconds for the thing to start up, and and uh, it was killing my computer. So I I uh, remember having this conversation with the guy who is. Um, uh, uh, writing our imaging code, Scott Furman, and he had told me that GIFs had this ability to do this kind of animation thing, and it was it was really cool. And he showed me um, how this could work. Uh, and at the time, I was like, "Oh, this is awesome! We should put it in." He was like, "Nah, nobody wants it. You know, it's a lot of work. Uh, we'd have to do all these all these things." Um, and so we kind of let it go. And then when I saw Java was only doing basically these stupid animations, and it was killing my computer. I went back over to Scott and I said, Scott, we got to do this. And he was resistant. And I just kept going every day. And every time I would see Java come up, I'd be like, Scott, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. So uh, after about a month of pestering, <laughs> he, finally, he finally relented and built, uh, and built the animated GIF code into the browser for the next release. And essentially, all that Java disappeared in one release because everybody said, oh, this is, this is a much better way to do banner ads. So... Yeah, that's um, funny. I, I, the, the, the first company, all the first company I did, uh, the, every ad that we ran for three years were animated GIFs. Exactly. Uh, and so it was really my anger at the bad implementation of Java uh, that, that, that uh, caused me to you know, just go insane on that thing. So um, it, it, in some ways, it probably killed Java uh, because it l created less incentive to go fix Java. <laughs> <laughs> to be faster, because people stopped using it essentially. Uh, although you know, that's really, uh, you know, we were just incorporating Sun's code. It would, if they had just gotten around to making Java a little bit faster, the Java interpreter, um, it probably would have been fine. But um, since they never got around to doing that, uh, Java pretty much died as a client-side um, language on the web. And uh, we were also working on JavaScript, which did did all the things that Java kind of hope to do within the browser. Well, could you possibly have imagined the afterlife that the animated GIF has had these days? You know, did, where, where would Reddit be without it? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's a fun meme. Uh, I, I, uh, I love animated GIFs uh, most of the time. It's nice to see that we don't have all those quite, quite as annoying advertisements as they used to be with the, uh, with the, you know, the craziness that the early days brought. Uh, and now that we have video formats and everything else, uh, we've gone beyond what the animated GIF originally set out to do. Right. Um, is the is the fish cam still running? I yeah, I thought that it was. Uh, if you go to fishcam.com, you can see it. I'll I'll go wave in the in the camera uh, after we're done. Okay. <laughs> and we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary. I think uh, the fish cam first went live. Gosh, I don't know. Somewhere in um, August, September, kind of time frame of 1994. So I don't know what I'm going to do for the 20-year anniversary there, but something fun. Well, that that segs me easily to my uh, final Good Morning America style puff questions for you, which are essentially, uh, you know, it is 20 years now. Um, what is, you know, I I I feel like I want to ask all you guys that that were there at the beginning of this sort of stuff, like what is, is, is the web and the internet what you were envisioning at the time? Are you disappointed by what it's become? Is it more than you could have imagined? Is it exactly what you imagined? Well, it's, it, it, it's certainly way beyond what I could have imagined because uh, the way people have used it in uh, in businesses that are completely transformed now, I never would have imagined. Um, the idea at the founding of the company was to create a platform where people could do things that were extraordinary and way beyond what we could think of. We would actually sit in meetings and say, 
okay, that's a good feature, but how do we make it so people could do stuff that, that we can't even imagine? Let's not limit this to our own imagination. Let's make this, let's make the building blocks um, capable of building something way beyond. So make sure it fits together like Legos. Um, it was partly the design of cookies was made more general than it needed to be so that people could do more with it than just what I was imagining. And the design of JavaScript and the design of, of our HTML elements were designed to create building blocks that could be built into something that was extraordinary. Uh, and I'm, I'm unbelievably proud of, of what, what we were able to create. The, uh, if you look back at the, the history, uh, the time period between um, uh, 1994 and 1995, um, when we started in about the first two years of our development, uh, essentially every major piece of technology which drives the web today was invented in that, in that time period um, by a relatively small group of very passionate engineers. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm humbled and, and, uh, and uh, uh, I just overjoyed that I was able to be part of such a special team that, that worked really, really hard to create the initial technology that has exploded into something so amazing. Does it feel like it's been 20 years or this coming up, is it, is it coming up faster than you would have imagined or what, what does it feel like that it's 20 years on now? Uh, it definitely doesn't feel like 20 years. I, I sometimes wonder where all the time has gone. <laughs> I've been enjoying my life and, and uh, trying to uh, do as many things as possible and uh, uh, I can't believe 20 years has gone by. I've, I've recently seen um, several of the uh, founding team members, and uh, we don't look that different, honestly. I guess maybe <laughs> that's uh, that's just a matter of perspective. But you never uh, look that different when you look in the mirror, do you? No. <laughs> it's still you still see the 10 year old or something looking back at you. Yeah. Uh, everybody's doing well, and uh, I saw uh, I spent a bunch of time with Jim recently, and he's uh, unbelievably vibrant. He's, he's expecting a second child and living life to its fullest. And we have these amazing conversations and talk about we don't we don't focus on the past a lot. We're we're thinking about you know what what would be another great company to start. What are the how how is uh, mobile technology transforming you know our lives and, and various things and just like. Uh, New ideas and and uh, loving where the world is and where it can where it can go. Well, that sounds like a good place to end. You're you're at uh, Zeta.net now, correct? Absolutely. And just a little bit about Zeta for us. We are a leading provider of offsite data protection and disaster recovery services for small to medium enterprises. Excellent. Well, I'll let you get back to that. Um, my thanks definitely to Lou Montuli for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. My thanks again to Lou. And um, just a quick note here to let you know to stay tuned. Over the next few weeks, we'll have uh, hopefully plenty more early Netscape folks.